0: Hey, hey, y'all. It's me, Robin. And just real quick before we get to today's episode, if you are loving listening to the podcast, or maybe you don't know because you've just pressed play for the first time ever, but if you like to listen to things in your earbuds, you are going to be so happy to know that Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors is now released as an audiobook. You can get it in Audible, or wherever else you get your audiobooks. And of course, you can still get it in print and ebook. If you go to slash book, it's going to give you all the options, including that you could order a signed copy from my local bookstore. Alrighty, y'all. Here's that podcast episode you're waiting for. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It's the Parenting After Trauma podcast. I'm Robin Goble, and I am here with a very special guest, Marcella Maslow. It's so great to have you with me here today. Thank you so much for making this time.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. This is, I forgot to mention, this is my first podcast ever, and I cannot, oh, I, love that. I cannot even tell you. Like parts of me were like so low-key nervous about this, but like uh, I could, I had to keep reminding myself. I was, I'm like, this is like a guru here and like there is nobody else that I would do my first podcast journey with. So uh, preface it with that.
0: Well, I am so honored that this gets to be like the first time you, you know, get to have a conversation like this and record it and put it out into the world like that. And I love that for my audience too, that they get to for like- sure be here and like witness this first time experience for you. And I do think it's very brave. I think going on a podcast and putting something out into the world forever. Even though people can't see it.
1: Yes. I am regulating my own nervous system right now because there are parts of me that like, what the heck are you doing? I got this. We got
0: this. Well, we're going to have fun. We'll have lots of playful engagement to like get our nervous systems through. And I love this. I'm so honored. Um, So tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Thank
1: you. So I am in Buffalo, New York, um, where it's already starting. Like seasons are changing here. Um, I'm in Buffalo. I have had my own clinical private practice for uh, about two and a half years now. Um, I am a trauma therapist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a registered play therapist. So I kind of have my hands in a couple of different areas there. Um, And I work with a whole gamut of people from little itty bitties, like three years old, um, all the way up to, you know, people who are on the other end of the spectrum. Um, And a big part of my work is working with the adoptee population, adoptive parents, their families, all that kind of stuff, um, because I myself am a transracial transnational adoptee. So that has always been a huge, important part of my work, um, because there is such a need um, and then I also do some consultation. I am super, super close to becoming an EMDR official consultant. I've got like a couple more weeks to go. Um, so yeah, I kind of got my hands in a lot of different areas.
0: I, I love that we have many similarities yeah. in that way as well, and and also in I also saw teeny tiny little ones as well as you know again also the opposite edge of, end of the spectrum and and, and yeah. loved for lots of different reasons, really loved having kids on my caseload as well as adults. It was a really rewarding way to work.
1: For sure. You know, it makes my heart so happy to see um, other adoptees, whether it's in the mental health community, other communities, being able to kind of use our voices and yes. um, illuminate this experience for what it truly is, which you know, it, it's really complex. There's a lot of stuff going into it. And I can appreciate when clinicians, you know, are also able to take a step back and be like, you know what, lived experience is is super important. You can be trained in a zillion different things, but that lived experience within my own practice, I think just makes such a different level of healing possible. And I'm the first one to say this when I work with parents, I make a lot of adoptive parents really uncomfortable um, because I think they see little bits and pieces of their own kids that they've adopted In me, And I tell them from the jump, I'm like, I'm going to absolutely bring my clinical know-how into this and all of the things that I'm trained in and the things that I know about clinically. But I'm also going to translate this for you from the adoptee view, because even though my experience and my story isn't the same as your child's, the feelings are. And I can 100% relate and kind of translate for you what's going on in there so yes. that you can really truly more effectively
0: help your kid. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great little dovetail into what I would love to bring to all of my listeners today, which is helping our kids really understand their stories, especially I, you know, I want to, my, my first compulsion is to say something, especially when the stories are really hard, but the honest truth is that, is it sounds more like, especially when the stories make us feel really uncomfortable. Mm. That's Uh
1: Important distinction there. Yeah.
0: Very important distinction for sure. And also it's valid that some of these tricky things, you know, like we just don't know how to talk about them. And then when we are afraid that if we talk about them, we're going to potentially hurt somebody that we love so, so, so much, our child. It just gets really jumbly. But I tell you what, you know, I spend enough time on the internet and in Facebook forums to know that these questions are being asked every day.
1: Yeah, Yeah. How do
0: I tell my child, you know, why they were relinquished for adoption or, or that we can't see their family or that they, their, their family doesn't want to see them or you know that their family has gone on to have a new family right there's so many things that arise that are leaving adoptive parents feeling like uh I have no idea right what to right, say. right. Um, and so I would love to explore that with you and maybe just start a little bit with why is it important to give Um, Our kids, honest, accurate information.
1: Right. Well, I think that it is. And again, I can 100% agree. That's a question I get all the time of just how do I say this? What language do I use? What's appropriate? Are they even going to understand this? Right. And I think that those are the questions that keep a lot of adoptive parents stuck because they're just like, Oh my gosh, too many unknowns, too many things that could possibly go really, really wrong. And so it just kind of stays stuck. And what I explained to them is that, you know, it's so important because the adoptive parents a lot of times hold the um, a lot of the facts that sometimes aren't shared from the jump or the child was really, really young and doesn't, you know, wasn't aware of what was going on at the time. Okay. And, you know, I work with a lot of people that were adopted as infants, right? That pre-verbal mm-hmm. trauma where yes. there legitimately was zero language for this relinquishment, yes. any kind of in utero trauma, you know, yes. this this just drastic trauma that happened. And I I try to empower adoptive parents to set to your child so that they can start to develop their own narrative. It doesn't mean they're going to keep the language that you use, but it means that you're helping to fill in the gaps. Number one, because they've already lived it. Parts of their system and their bodies already know that this really crappy thing happened, but they just don't have the language. So it's giving them that but then also being able to, you know, come together and get through something really difficult together.
0: Yeah. So I want to just highlight like these two really important things that you said. And one is because I know you get this from parents too, is is the fear of, of like, why should I bring up this thing that's really hard or really painful or, or tell them about something that maybe they don't remember or, and, 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 and I, really understand that fear. And I always say something like, but, but they were there. Yeah. We lived it. We lived it. Exactly. They already know. Mm
1: -hmm. It's
0: just, you know, is that memory stored, you know, in a place where they can actually like recall it versus just having their body remember it. And I did do for everyone listening, a podcast series. Uh, I don't remember when I'll look for it and link it in the show notes, but on memory. And the difference between implicit and explicit. Yeah. And that even when experiences happened pre verbally, there's still a really, you know, really crucial that we give language yeah. to those experiences.
1: Yeah. A lot of times when I see parents that come in and they haven't filled in those gaps, these kiddos, they come up with a story that's like 8 million times worse. Sometimes 8 million times trickier or more complex. And it can just be such a relief in some ways, not that it's still not hard material to digest, but it can just be such a relief to know, oh my gosh, okay, it wasn't this, it was this. Because especially with most young kids, it's always internalized about them, right? I, I wasn't lovable. I cried too much, right? They internalize it when most of the time, you know, it has nothing to do with that, with that child. It was external factors that were totally out of their control.
0: Yeah. I have the same experience that like the, the, the made up story to fill in the gaps is almost always worse yeah. And even if it's not worse in like the narrative that they've created, it's worse because it feels worse in the body because it's not true.
1: 100%. Yeah, yes. that's where my mind just went, right? Of just it doesn't match, right? There's this right. like mismatch of like they tell yep. themselves this narrative, but their little systems and their body and so it just makes their system even more jumbled.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And then I also love that you highlighted this other really important piece. Um because I think it again kind of gives some counter information to some parents' deepest held fear is if I tell my child these things, is it gonna impact my relationship with this child? Is it gonna hurt our attachment? And yes. my experience has been that exactly the opposite happens when the story is told from a place of connection and compassion and regulation. And, and the parents have had the opportunity to, to be regulated while yeah. they're, you know, while they're having these conversations and um, that it really creates these opportunities to, for the child to feel so seen and connected with, and that that's nothing but great for the child as well as a parent child relationship. And it sounds like that's what you're seeing as well.
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I have had parents over the years that have had to share such difficult details of these stories. Right. And I'm all about, you have to do it in a developmentally appropriate way But, you know, most of the time when I see it, I'll have a lot of parents just need some of that extra support. And we will share that really hard information in session altogether so that it is in a safe space. It's in a place that child knows that all feelings are like totally allowed to happen and we can handle them. And I got to say, probably 99 percent of the time, those conversations end in a big hug. Right. They end in a hug. They end in that moment of coming together. Yes, there's a lot of big emotions, but there's that sigh of relief of like, okay, like it's out there now. And now we can take steps forward to get through whatever comes next.
0: Yeah. You know, I have adults, I've had adults in my office and be able to articulate something like, like when they found out a part of their story that was they didn't know before. I have literally had adults and more than one sit, like take a breath and then be like, I always knew that was true. Yes,
1: yes. I can speak to that from professional experience, but also personally, right? There is, and it it speaks to some of the challenges just with, you know, the the system of adoption is a lot of this information is not documented. A lot of the information can be falsified or, you know, tweaked and things like that. And it wasn't until later on in my adult life when I was in reunion that I was able to get some of those answers, and as soon as I heard them, it was like, oh, that's it. That that was it. That was yeah. what I was feeling and sensing yes. all along. And it was like this puzzle piece. And then it was yes, still hard, but it was like, a, oh, okay, I can I can make sense of that now.
0: Totally. And that doesn't mean again that it's not going to be hard or that there's not going to be grief or yeah. or even just negative feelings in general that yeah. arise. But that yeah. there's there's a different quality, right, between like like, and when I say negative feelings, like the kind of feelings we would typically call like mad or, or yeah. grief, I know I those hard think.
1: feelings everybody yeah. in my office, yeah. right? It's like they're hard feelings, right? Yeah. They're hard,
0: yeah, 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 um, but that just because they're hard doesn't mean that they're bad, right. And we can have hard feelings in a way that actually ultimately can feel good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's you're in connection when you're going through them. You're not like on this isolated little island having to make sense of all this, except especially for these kids whose brains aren't even fully formed. They, they need other people to help them get through that and make some sense of it and just be able to literally be their safe base as they kind of shuffle through and put all that stuff together.
0: What would you say to the parent who is... Um, really wanting to protect their child's first family, um yeah. and that's some of the reluctance is this feeling at p- parents say all the time i like, well, I don't want to throw them under the bus mm-hmm. in that language so often and so um the the space in between like being honest with kids while also honoring. Um, first family is how do you help parents navigate that hard space? Because sometimes it's true, like sometimes the story is really bad, right? That like what happened in their first families is really bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And just hard to put words around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that first and foremost with my adoptive parents that I work with, we have to do a lot of validating of where they're Mm -hmm. coming from makes sense. Of course you want to protect this child. Of course you don't want to cause more pain. Of course, you don't want to, you know, have to deal with the after effects of them maybe having behavior spikes while they sort all of this information out. But I think that, you know, a a big thing is, is guiding parents if there's a way to do it respectfully, right? And I think that one of the biggest things I say is, if you in any way have parts of yourself that are feeling triggered, if you're kind of mad, at this, you know, biological family, if you have kind of some resentments, or, you know, any kind of really difficult feelings about it, that's not the space to start talking to your kid about it, you have to be able to sit in that space of, you know, this person, no matter what they have done, no matter what decisions and choices they make, is a part of my child, that what that's what has to lead the conversation. Because if you hurt them, or if you say anything that is negative towards this really critical person in your child's life, you're always going to end up being the bad guy. You're always going to end up being the bad guy because there is this, this loyalty and this love that makes so much sense. And the last thing you want to do is put your kid in a loyalty bind of like, oh my gosh, I got to choose. And now I'm saying this and all these kinds of things. It just makes it so much more complicated for them.
0: I'm interrupting the show real quick because if you happen to be a new listener, you might find yourself being a little overwhelmed by all this information. That makes total sense. I mean, there's like 150 episodes plus all the free resources that are available over my website. It's just a lot. So many folks have asked me, where do I start? So I created a separate podcast stream called Start here. What I did is I took the 10 episodes that I want you to listen to first, and then I want you to listen to in this specific order, and I put them into a separate podcast stream so that you don't have to search for them. You can just press play and they'll play one after the other after the other. If you go to robingobel.com slash start here, you'll be able to get an invitation to subscribe, and then you'll be able to listen right in the same podcast app you're using right now robbingobel.com slash start here. So much more complicated. Yeah, I found, I wonder if you find this too, that there's this kind of lovely byproduct that happens when I work with families long enough to really um, talk about like the impact of trauma and toxic stress. And I spend a lot of time with families talk about talking about like, you like what behavior really is and how mm-hmm. it's just emerging from the state of the nervous system and then there there seems to very frequently be this space where um parents realize like oh that doesn't just apply to my kid like mm-hmm. i can apply that to myself but i can also apply that to my kids first families yeah and then that can open up some compassion that right. can be really helpful as well
1: Yeah, I think just having that understanding piece is so huge. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with the choices. It doesn't mean that you have to be like, yes, absolutely, I support that 100%. But a lot of times people need to see, oh yeah, that's where that's coming from. And that makes sense for that person based on whatever really hard stuff they've had to go through in their lives. And a lot of times I think that people perceive that as an attack or like, oh, they're doing it to me, or they're doing it to my child, or they're doing it with, you know, malintent. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with that.
0: Nope. No. I mean, I think so rarely, right. Does our behavior have anything to do with anybody, but ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's a way that we communicate, right? That's a huge thing that I touch on with parents of, you know, if your kid doesn't have language for this stuff, especially look at those behaviors, those behaviors are going to communicate exactly what is going on inside Mm -hmm. for them. And again, I think that that only increases some of that compassion of like, oh my gosh, like little one, you don't have any words for this. So of course, this is how you're going to show me, you know, mm-hmm. how angry you are or how confused you are, or how scary you are that something really bad's going to happen again. Like it, it just makes so much more sense. And that's where I see parents be like, oh, okay. Like I'm not crazy. It's not me, right? It's like, yes. I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong here.
0: Yes. Yes. How about families who like you already mentioned, have very little information or when families realize the information that they have is untrue. Mm, I know. Um, It's
1: it's like literally devastating. I think it's like the professional and personal parts of me blend and it's just like, I feel it when it happens. Like this like... Oh, just like that gut-wrenching, like your heart drops kind of feeling. And it's 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 really complex. And like you said, it happens so much more often than it should. And I think that speaks a lot to the kind of reform that's needed within the adoption system and all those kinds of things. But I think what is, again, really important is when adoptive parents have put in the time to learn about trauma, about the nervous system, about what can happen pre-verbally and in utero and all those kinds of things, we can connect some of the dots, right? We can kind of assume like, yes, that baby must have been so scared. That child must have been so confused, you know, that, that little one must have felt so angry that nobody was explaining what was going on to them. And so in my work, and especially when I integrate EMDR and trauma Mm -hmm. work into things, it's concocting that narrative that we are pretty sure those things would fit the bill, right? It doesn't have to come down to, you know, oh my gosh, I know every single little, little detail. If you have that, that's amazing. But it doesn't mean that your child shouldn't still have some sort of language and words and a story around stuff that we know their little systems were probably going through.
0: I also feel like kids are usually pretty happy to tell us when we're wrong. And so- I love working with kids. I know. No, I mean, not always. I mean, there's a, 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 you know, like a, a a kind of child that is just saying, yes, yes, yes. You know, especially in that clinical space, but, but most kids are happy to be like, no, I wasn't confused. Uh Uh (laughs) No, I wasn't mad. And so, you know, I was able to, really grown my own confidence and kind of like lobbing out sorts of things. Like, oh, that baby, I wonder if that baby was so mad or so sad or or whatever, because I really started to feel like, no, they're happy to tell you when you're totally wrong, but when you get it right and it lands... Yeah. Right? yeah. Or you can even just see it, right? Like yes. once you're throwing
1: some words out there, and that's why I love integrating play therapy into it is because yeah. you can do stuff at a distance. It doesn't have to be yes. the kids sitting on the couch and being exactly. like, oh, does this apply to you? It's like, no, that's not how kids integrate stuff. That's not right. how they learn. It's like, I have a million different ways in my office that we can elicit this stuff and you yeah. can even see just by their nonverbal yes. sometimes like their body has a reaction and then you know all right i'm onto something there but i do i get those kiddos too that you're like you know that's you got that wrong and then it's yeah. like, i can acknowledge it i got that yeah. wrong thanks for telling me and then you you move on
0: yes yes so for anyone out there who's feeling a little bit like don't want to project too much feelings onto your kids i think it you if we're paying attention to what happens next Yes. That's, I think, the real key point. Like we can really feel, I think, into like the rejection of that kind of label or even feel into the people-pleasing mm-hmm. type behavior that can come up that's just agreeing, you know, like right. the more we are in attunement with our kids and that's really like right. the bottom line. Well, and I think it. the
1: ability to, for parents to be really present as well yeah. and regulate themselves in it because- Sometimes your kid's answer is gonna make you uncomfortable, right? Of like, yeah, I really miss so and so," or "I'm really sad that that happened," or you know, whatever it is, it can absolutely be triggering. For parents, and I see sometimes that they almost want to try and convince their kid out of it or try and pull them out and say, but, but you're so happy that you're with us, right? Or, but you're, you know, you love, you know, being at home because you have your dog and all those kinds of things. And it's kind of rushing them through That moment of they're letting you into their world and kind of being vulnerable and letting you know, like, yeah, actually, I do have some mixed up feelings about this. And so I really encourage parents, like, just allow yourself to sit with it and don't try and rush your kid through it because they're going to learn, oh, that means that mom or dad or whoever can't handle me saying it makes me sad. Or they can't handle that it makes me mad. And kids learn that stuff real quick, especially when there's attachment trauma involved.
0: Oh yeah. Real quick. Like teeny babies are learning. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen research that have said something about like within 42 minutes of birth, like babies are adjusting their behavior based on their caregivers' responses. It's pretty wild. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and I think about exactly what, you know this this space. I think culturally, this has nothing to do with adoption. Like culturally, we do a crappy job holding two separate feelings at once, right? That it's mm-hmm. possible for there to be tremendous grief and also coexist inside this very loving family that was made by adoption, like both, both can be totally true. Our child grieving or being really angry or whatever intensity, whatever the feeling is, doesn't have to take away anything about, you know, our family that is good or that we love.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the both and mentality of it can be both and it can be this, and it can be that. And a lot of times, you know, we want to just look at the side that's like rainbows and butterflies, and it's super pretty, and the, you know, side that the media portrays. And when we do that, and I speak to it both personally and professionally, so much damage can be done. And we, you know, we're, we're not doing a service to, These individuals that have had to live through this were just kind of like saying, oh, no, only the parts of you that I like are okay. And that's a really powerful message. And if a kid starts learning that, guarantee that's going to continue into adulthood, into their relationships, into like all sorts of other areas.
0: Yeah. Do you think that some of this kind of also comes back to, the the minimization, or it's just so uncomfortable, I think, to acknowledge that adoption for the child is like the most traumatic thing that could possibly happen. Like really, if you pause and think about like losing a parent, Mm -hmm. there's not anything worse that comes to mind for me, for a child. Yet at the same time, for many of our adoptive parents, righteously so, it was one of the best experience for them, right? Mm -hmm. The time that they, and and that's not true for all adoptive parents, but for so many, it is like this moment of having this family and, and the moment of being able to parent. And so to put those two things together, I mean, there's hardly a bigger juxtaposition and that is so uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it's super uncomfortable for parents. And I think that it is, you know, so important to bring parents back to like your child that you adopted had a life. Their life started, yes. their start story started before you entered the picture. Right. Yeah. And if we negate that and just start by like, okay, the day I met you is day one, you're missing a lot of really critical information that can help you not only understand your kid better, but help you then be able to support them more effectively. And, you know, I I get that it's uncomfortable. I understand it because for most adoptive parents that I've worked with, you know, mine included, this was something that they dreamed of, right? This was something that like, you know, for my parents, it's like that topped their wedding day, like all of these big, huge things. But, you know, as I got older, it's, you know, you you look at the picture and yes, you see all of the joy around, but if you really hone in on that child, it's like, they've got the big wide eyed like what the heck is going on here kind of face. And again, it's just that disconnect. It's like misattunement from the jump. And that can make it really, really hard to formulate those needed bonds and connections and, you know, and attachments.
0: And how important that you have a narrative around that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, for sure.
0: What about when things are just really, really awful? What do you suggest parents do first?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the first things that I encourage parents is to get all of the information that they can, right? The last thing you want to do is assume. The last thing you want to do is just throw things out there because there's puzzle pieces missing. Absolutely, most of the time, there are some pieces that will Mm -hmm. forever remain missing. But if there are any that you can put in there, do the due diligence by your child and do that, whether it's getting in touch with the agency, whether you have contact with biological family directly, the hospital they were born at, whatever, get that information so that you can put together a narrative that is as accurate as humanly possible, right? Because when we just start kind of going out on our own, things get really, really messy. And then sometimes you have to go back and undo The stuff that you were trying to throw out there so i think that's first and foremost um i also think it's having to before anything is even shared with the child it's having to do your own work around it like make sure that you are not getting super triggered by this you have to be in that space of my feelings are valid but they're over here and i have to be able to hold space for this child Um, You know, sometimes I work with parents and we literally write out a narrative of this is how we're going to say, and I say, you guys go home and you're going to pretend that you're prepping for a play and you practice it. And I also remind them there is a difference between showing emotion about this because we want these kids to see that this is emotional and it's okay. But there's a difference between showing some of that and being like a puddle that then your kid has to be like, oh my gosh, this isn't safe. You know, so-and-so can't handle this. They have yeah. to be able to really be that safe base in the moment. And then it's a lot of having to readdress it. I think that's the thing that a lot of parents miss the most is this isn't a one-time thing. This is not going to be a one-time conversation of like, Oh, okay. That's done. Check it off the list. It's something that you are going to have that. To.
0: Yeah. As the, and as kids get older, it means something different uh-huh. to them, right? Like yeah. how a five-year-old is making sense of their story and like the kinds of questions they have or the meaning they're making out of it is right. wildly different than a 10-year-old and then a 15-year-old and, you know, a 19-year-old. And yeah. so preparing for that, like we're going to have to re reintegrate. Yes. Yeah, and what meaning. I t- what
1: I tell a lot of parents too, and this is, you know, the EMDR trauma approach coming in, but then also just what we know about neurobiology is, yeah. it is so much um, better for your child to know that information earlier. Yes. Um, because their brain is so much more malleable, right? And I can even attest to this doing trauma work with kids. Number one, it's just like super fun um, because you can do it in so many creative ways. But also, they process through stuff so much yes. quicker than you know the adults that I see. That we might yes. be stuck on one target for weeks because it's just so integrated in there. The earlier they have that information information that's developmentally appropriate, language that's developmentally appropriate, the more resilient we set them up to be. And yes, it doesn't mean that we're never going to have to address it again, but it means that we won't have to be doing every single domino hit that's like in the line. It's we might have to only be working with a couple of them and then we can kind of move forward.
0: Yeah, so, when parents have a little one, a three year old or a five year old, and this story is that their, you know, first family couldn't continue to take care of them maybe due to a, let's say, a significant substance abuse problem. That one comes mm-hmm. up with with some regularity. How how do parents give that information to such a little, little child? Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Well, one thing that I encourage parents to do, even before they're providing details about that the child that are specific to their story, talking about different kinds of families is mm-hmm. really important, right? Families that have divorced in the family, families that, you know, have Um, You know, two moms or two dads or just a single parent, you know, kinship adoptions, all those kinds of things, just to kind of have the foundation of that there are different kinds of families out there and that there's different ways to do that. But one thing that I really emphasize is, you know, kids need to be safe in a family. Right. That's something that is like really, really crucial. And for a lot of the families and kids I work with, there was something that was deemed unsafe Or, you know, there were situations that were beyond, you know, their control that happened that caused this adoption to have to take place. So something like your example about substance use is, yeah, for a three to five-year-old, you're probably not going to go into what is addiction and what is substance abuse and all of those things. But I will say to parents, it's like, we can say that that's a kind of sickness, right? That is a kind of sickness that makes it really, really hard for grownups to be safe grownups for a kid. Right. So something it's really simple language. I think a lot of parents overthink it sometimes and they want to just fill the space with a bunch of words. Most three to five year olds, if you start with, you know, every baby needs to be able to feel safe. They need to be able to have somebody to take care of them and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, your mom or your dad had, you know, this sickness that made it really hard for them to do that. That's something that is so developmentally appropriate, and then you build on it. We're not trying to inundate all of this right. stuff on a kid in one sitting.
0: Yeah, I see that too. The kind of overcomplication and the um, also just using the so normal, right? Just kind of like using our adult brains to yeah. you know, like we're looking through this lens. And so I really remind folks: it's like, well, the thing is, is like substance abuse or even drug use means nothing to a small child. Like what no. what matters is just like you said you know, couldn't keep you safe. And then I, yeah, as you were talking, it just was brought back to like so much of this is just about, I think like our cultural confusion about quote unquote bad behavior, meaning a bad person. Yes. And I think the better we get at distinguishing between the two that this can be an amazing human being, who just really struggled with a behavior that meant it wasn't safe yeah. for them to take care of you. And I think once, it feels to me so much in my own body that once that as that gets more and more clear, that the words come a little bit easier.
1: Right, right. Well, and something, right, like for little ones with something as complex as substance abuse, Something that in time I encourage parents to add on, right? Is that this is a kind of illness that you get when you've had to go through really hard things because nobody wakes up one day and says, Oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna go have a substance use problem today. Like that never happens. And it's being able to also, again to your point, not label that individual as, oh, they did something bad and they're bad and therefore I'm bad. It's being able to humanize it and say, you know what, this person had to go through some really hard things. And this was a sickness that came about because of that, which made it really hard for them to be able to give you what you needed. And then after that, it's less about giving all the details and more about the, it's okay for you to feel confused about that, or it's okay for you to feel sad about that. Right. And just giving some of that language for all the different complex emotions that might come up.
0: Absolutely. I love everything that you've that you've just said, especially the part about like, it's okay to be confused. It's okay to have mixed feelings. And, and also for parents, I'll often say, and I wonder how you navigate this is um, I tell parents, it's okay if you don't know the answer. Like it's okay for you literally to say, I don't know. Or even like, that's such a good question, baby. And I notice that I start to feel really confused when you ask that question is, you know what? I'm going to take just uh, you know, a couple of minutes, a couple of days. I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yes. But like, I'm going to think about that. But it's such an important question. Let me take time to think about it. And then I'll come back to you. Like, we don't have to answer people's questions immediately just because they asked it.
1: Right. Setting good boundaries, right? We're modeling yeah. good boundaries for Absolutely. our kids in that moment, right? So it's, it's validating in the moment. Of course, you would have that question. That makes yes. a lot of sense. Are there other questions that you have, right? Opening that up so that these kids know you are a safe place to kind of put all of this stuff. I absolutely agree. I tell parents all the time, if you do not know, I would rather you say, I don't know the answer to that. Let me see if I can find out, do your due diligence and try and find some stuff out. But then you gotta remember to return to it. Don't just leave your kid hanging. If they asked you a question and you had to go do some research or take a second to regulate yourself, you got to make sure that you go back to it or that's going to send a message to that child of like, oh, okay. So-and-so is not following through with this. I better not ask about that again. So I think the follow through with all of this is really, really key.
0: Yeah. And I think saying, I don't know, is still crafting a narrative, Mm -hmm. right? That Sometimes we really just have absolutely no idea. And like you said, sometimes we can piece things together and there's a lot of things we can do, I think to construct a narrative, but sometimes like kids ask questions that you're, you just stop and you go, Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know yeah. why that happened. I don't know why that was allowed to happen. I don't, I wish it hadn't.
1: Right. And yes. we can be really huge. sad and
0: confused. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even just the power of like an I'm sorry, like an I'm yes. sorry that that is something that you have to have like weighing on your heart. And I'm sorry that this is something that is on your plate that you had no control over. And just being able to acknowledge the unfairness of some of this, right? Like there is a lot of unfairness in adoption when it comes to being an adoptee. And I think that is something you you can't fix any of this, right? Mm -hmm. The message to my adoptive parents and and all the ones I work with is like, you can't fix it. The bad thing already happened. So you just have to be able to make space and apologize and acknowledge, you know what, like This was something I had a very different experience with. Right. This was the best day of my life. I wanted this so bad. But your experience is different. And there's a lot of unfairness and hardness and just making space for that. Um, I know in my life personally, I know when I, I work with families, it just makes such a difference. It like breaks down this barrier of like, okay, you know what? They they can't do anything to fix it. And frankly, like a lot of times we don't want to be fixed. Like I, exactly. I don't want to be fixed. You know, yeah. it's just, I want somebody to hear me and validate the stuff that's going on. And that's what I see no matter the age of my client. Like that's what they're wanting. They're just wanting somebody that can handle all that really big stuff.
0: Yes. I think that is such a core challenge is this feeling as parents that somehow it's my job to help my child not feel bad. Yes, and I don't I mean I don't I could guess we could muse on a totally different episode like where we learned that and why, yeah, but um it's you know to to really just come face to face with my kid has experienced something awful that has awful feelings surrounding it in some ways I contributed to it, yes, and I cannot change it, yes. And Preach, I never can.
1: yes that is that is huge right it's having to take the accountability of like I in some ways was part of this really messy thing that happened yeah. and a lot of parents and again I make a lot of parents uncomfortable with that but you have to be able to acknowledge your part and the fact that you did inflict a little bit of harm there yeah. right and even though adoptive parents' feelings are so valid and it makes sense. And most of the ones I work with have really great intentions. It doesn't negate the fact that they're still kind of involved in the system, right? They bought into it and were a part of it. And in some ways they maybe got a little taken advantage of too, but it's having to make space and acknowledge that.
0: Yeah. And that is hard.
1: It's super hard, but it's also super healing, right? I use this example a lot of times with adoptive families that I work with is one of the most healing conversations I ever had with my own adoptive parents was when, you know, it was with my dad and my dad is definitely not a big talker. He's not a big feeler, right? But, um, you know, just in terms of expressing it, but he was able to say, you know what? Like, I get it. Like, if you had had your choice, this wouldn't have been your choice. And I'm so, I'm sorry about that, right? And like that literally was such a game changer because it was one of the first times ever that somebody had been able to acknowledge and been like, oh my gosh, like, of course that makes sense. That little you would have picked something different. And just being able to hold space for that, it is such a healing thing. And that's once adoptive parents are able to get to that point, I see so many things shift within the
0: family. That level of we can all just be present and real and honest yeah. with each other is such a such a gift that's really hard to come by in most families, regardless yeah. of how those families are formed. Right. And so that level of just authenticity, I see you and I see me. Like I'm willing to also be so present with myself mm-hmm. that I can show up for you in this way is so profound. Yeah. So profound.
1: Yeah. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to be able to do that. And it's, it's amazing to see that happen with the families that I work with because nobody gives you a a manual on this stuff. And most of the families that I have come in, they're like, Oh my gosh. Like our agency never told us this. We never got prepared. This wasn't in like the pre-adoption work. Like where, where, like, where did I go wrong? Where did I miss this? And it's just this continual learning that has to happen and this continual commitment to being open to, you know, doing that work.
0: Yeah. And it brought me back to even just how it forces us to come back into contact with our own humanity. Like, yes life is hard and sometimes it's awful Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's amazing and all of those things are true. And, you know, the braver that we can get with being present with all of the, the messy and the yucky and um, even the times where we've contributed to Mm -hmm. harmful things, like the more we can find um, Just compassion for ourselves. And I think just for our humanity. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. That's what they, it's a big thing, right? Being able to model that for these kids, too, of like, you're just a human at the end of the day. And humans have really big feelings, and we can get through those together. And I think that that is for a lot of these individuals that have been through the most immense attachment trauma. It's like, that is. A little bit of like a safety net there, of like okay, like this is something that's normal and this makes sense, and there are people around me that I can get through it with. Um, I think that that's the biggest thing. I see so many kids that come in and they do. They just have those protective systems of I just gotta bottle it, or I just explode, or I do this, and you know that's not what they're to. If we don't have that honesty, like you were talking about, that's that's where we're left with kids that bottle and with kids that explode.
0: Yeah. Yep well, gosh, this has just been the most delightful afternoon. I I don't do a lot of interviewing people I don't know. yeah. And so to have the opportunity to just carve out this time and get to know you, ah, I'm so, I'm just so grateful. So thank thank you. you.
1: the, The feeling is mutual. I am like, so grateful for the opportunity. It's just, it's, it's an amazing platform that you have. I honestly, I use you as a resource so much for my parents because this stuff is so key, especially for yeah. these adoptive families. It's like, yeah. there is such power and knowledge and knowing some of this stuff. And, um, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really appreciative. I was really happy to be able to do this.
0: Yeah. Well, for the, those of my listeners, both professionals as well, as parents who are lucky enough to live near Buffalo, New York, tell us just a smidge about like what you're offering because you're doing therapy, but also consultation for professionals. Yes,
1: for sure. So I have my clinical practice. Um, so again, I see people of all different ages. I do have the majority of my caseload as, um, people who have been impacted in some way by adoption. So that is absolutely there. I also do, um, not clinical, but parent consultations just to kind of do deeper dives into this kind of do some of that, um, You know, education work. Twenty twenty three. I have all dates. You guys can check out my website, and I can send you all that info, Robin. Um, I'm going to be having my adults or not adult adoptive parent virtual education and support group. That's going to be meeting quarterly. We're going to kind of do deeper dives into a lot of really important material, like we touched on today. And then I've also got some additional um, clinician consultation. And I have another um, really great adoptee. Uh, colleague and friend of mine who are going to be rolling out some trainings and consultation opportunities. So stay tuned for all that info.
0: Yeah. Well, gosh, I imagine that one day certainly our paths have to cross in real life. I mean, our interests and our things that we jam on are like exactly the same. So we're going to be friends, Robin. We're just going to be friends. I think we already are. And One day I'm sure we'll meet in person. That'll Absolutely.
1: Right now that amazing. now that the travel bans are over, we can actually make that into a reality. I'm down. We can
0: leave our houses again. As much as sometimes I'm like, do I really want to?
1: Cause I kind I of know, like, right? an sometimes I'm just like, Oh, like I could go for like a week of shutdown again, which is like oh, not that yeah.
0: everything would. Cause then I'd I know. It. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, oh gosh. Thank you again. So, so, so much. I'll make sure all this information gets in to the show notes. So people can come and find you and all the, Cool work that you're doing, and I look forward to this just being the beginning of all 100%. the cool conversations we have.
1: Right, right. I survived my first podcast, guys. This is like you, huge. Did, uh, you did now amazing. I'm, now I'm a pro. Now I'm
0: a. You pro. are a pro. <laughs> <laughs> thank,
1: thank you, thank so, you much. so much, Robin. I appreciate it. This has been awesome.
0: Y'all, it's so fun to think about sharing my experience meeting Marcella with you. I got to meet her at the same time that you did. I love that. Hey, I'm recording this quick little outro after the fact because at the very end of that episode, Marcella talks about an adoptee colleague and friend that they have some training and consultation Um, offerings that are planned for the future. And after uh, we recorded this episode, I learned that the colleague and friend that Marcella is connecting with to do these trainings with is Amy Wilkerson. Amy is going to be a guest on this podcast actually in just Two weeks. Amy is one of my 2022 Being With students. She is going to be a 2023 Being With student coach. She is the author of the amazing children's book, Being Adopted. And when I found out that the colleague that Marcella was talking about was Amy, I just giggled and I said, oh, I have to let everybody know that she's talking about Amy and that we are planning to introduce you to Amy and all of the amazing goodness that she is doing in the world as well. Since I recorded this episode with Marcella, Marcella and Amy have gotten together and started their own podcast. Marcella went from never being on a podcast to starting a podcast. With Amy Wilkerson. And the name of that podcast is Adoptees Dish. You can find it on Spotify. I make sure I will put the link down in the show notes. And also go follow Adoptees Dish and Marcella over on Instagram. I will put that information in the show notes as well. All right, y'all. I appreciate so much you taking the time to hang out with me and Marcella today to learn a bit from the adoptee perspective and the adoptee voice about the importance of giving our kids honest, accurate, and attuned information, even about the parts of their past that are really, really, really hard. I will see you back here next week. Are you... so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash with. read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too.